gospel. All right, we got to get right to this. Okay, we're studying basic. We're talking about the basics of our faith, the foundations of our faith, the very things that we believe, uh, the very ways in which we are to live. We're looking at the books of First and Second Peter uh, here on Sunday mornings. Uh, at the beginning of this year, we started back in January, and here we are at the end of February already. Doesn't feel like it, weather-wise. It's still cold and snowy outside, but we are at the end of February. We're moving into the month of, of March. We're going to do three more weeks on First Peter, uh, and then we're going to have Palm Sunday and Palm Sunday brunch, and we're going to have Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to have a great time of worship. We're going to invite a whole lot of people into our church family to come in and worship with us for, for uh, Resurrection Sunday, and then we're going to start the book of Second Peter in the, book, in the month of April. So we're covering First and Second Peter, and these are really great books. There's a lot of good theology, and there's a lot of uh, good teachings that we need to learn and things that we need to, to understand. And, and like I said, it goes back to the basics of our faith and the, the very foundational things that we believe as Christians and, and how we are to live as Christians. Now, like I said, we got to get right to this this morning because Peter's got a lot to tell us today. Peter's got a lot to say, and we're talking about the end is near. We're talking about how short time is because time really is short. Time is of the essence and the end is near. So if you will grab a Bible and uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, that's where we are today. Um, if you would advance to the next slide for me, please. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 as we talk about how the end is near. Grab your bulletin and on the back of the bulletin you'll find the HDO. Oh, well, we have an we have an we have a, uh, an acronym now, sort of. Uh, an yeah, we have an HDO. We have abbreviation. We have an abbreviation for the handy dandy outline. We have the HDO. So turn to the HDO. You're ready to fill in some blanks. There's only two this morning, and you're thinking, awesome, short sermon. Wrong. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of space between those bullet points for you to take a lot of notes. So uh, Peter has set up a dichotomy. He set up a dichotomy between uh, the way that believers in Christ used to live and the way that they live now. So the first blank on your outline is how we used to live then. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge into, with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. We'll stop right there. Now, you may have heard a phrase there in the first part, in verse uh, number one. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. You may be thinking to yourselves, done with sin? What does that mean? To be done with sin, you're thinking, is he talking about some kind of super Christian that doesn't sin anymore at all, that has completely done away with sin in their lives? 
I mean, that's kind of a scary thought. When you think about those words, done with sin, you may be thinking to yourself, now, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian like my, my, my whole life, and, and I, I'm not done with sin. I mean, I want to be done with sin, but uh, I'm not. I still fall short. I still miss the mark. I still give in to temptation. I do the things that I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things that I should do. Why, do, why am I still struggling with sin if all these Christians who have suffered in their body are, are done with sin? What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you will never struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that you will never struggle with, with temptation again. It means that a person who has suffered in their body for Christ, and he's talking to people who are undergoing persecution, that when you have suffered in your body, it means that you've made a choice. It means that when persecution broke out against the church, the Christians of Peter's day said, I'm making a choice. I'm taking a stand. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. I'm going to live for Jesus no matter what. No matter what comes down the pike, no matter what happens, no matter what kind of things they may try to do to me, no matter if they torture me, no matter if they beat me, no matter if they kill me, I've made a choice, I'm following Jesus. And what that means, what they're saying, is that I made my choice to follow Jesus and I'm leaving sin behind. I am done with sin. It doesn't mean I'm done with sin as in I'm never going to sin again. It means I'm done living that way. I'm done giving in to my evil desires. I'm done giving in to temptation. I'm done giving in to sin. Will I still fall short? Absolutely. Will I still miss the mark? Absolutely. Will I still sin and give in to temptation from time to time? Absolutely. But here's the good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that by God's grace, he still forgives our sin. He still washes us clean. Praise the Lord. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That God continues to forgive our sins. But no longer are we going to live a life that is characterized by sin. No longer are we going to live a life that is devoted to sin and sinful desires, but rather we are going to live a life that is more like Jesus. That I'm going to make a choice. And I'm not going to live that way anymore. I want to live for Jesus. I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to take a stand. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live for Jesus. And we see exactly what he's talking about. Because he sets up, like I said, this dichotomy about how they used to live. How they used to live then. How we used to live then. That was then this is now. We'll get to the now in just a moment, but first we've got to talk about the then. Because he talks about uh, the way that they used to live. There's, in, verse chapter, in verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, there are six things that people do and that Christians used to do. And he says, we're not going to do those anymore. And I like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse because it's a little easier to understand. He says, you have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Like I said, it's a little easier to understand uh, than the New International Version, which uses a little bit older language, but it means the exact same thing. And so there are six things that we're not going to do anymore, six things that we're not going to give into. Uh, in the NIV, it's, it uses the word pagans. In the New Living Translation, it uses the word godless. And I like that better because pagans has kind of a different connotation nowadays, but godless, I think, is, transcends time. That people who live like there is no God, 
the godless. And this is the way that they live. There's no fear of the one true God in their lives. And that's the way that they live. But we who fear God, we who love Jesus, we who love God, we're not going to live that way anymore. We're not going to live like that. So let's look at these six things. The first is immorality. People who worship themselves and live only for pleasure. It is the first godless activity is sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is defined as any sexual activity outside of a heterosexual monogamous relationship, a marriage relationship. So it's any kind of sexual activity outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage relationship. Now, you've got to put all those things in there because our society is uh, redefining marriage uh, according to culture. But uh, in the Bible, in, in biblical terms, and, and we follow Scripture here, we follow the Word of God, we follow the Bible, and in the Bible, uh, marriage is between a husband and a wife, uh, marriage is uh, for one husband and one wife. And so we believe and we teach that any sexual activity outside of a monogamous heterosexual married relationship is sexual immorality. And that's the biblical definition of sexual, sexual immorality. That's premarital sex. That's homosexual behavior. That's extramarital affairs. Having any kind of sexual activity outside of a monogamous heterosexual married relationship is sin. And it's sinful. So whether you're gay or straight, young or old, male or female, it's sin. And that is not what Christians do. That is not the way that Christians behave. Followers of Jesus Christ do not give in to sexual immorality. The second one that he lists is lust. And the Greek word for lust means strong desire. Strong desire. And specifically, it goes along with the first one, and that is the desire for the first thing, which is sexual behavior, sexual immorality. Christians are not to be addicted to lust. You know, there's a difference between looking at somebody and go, wow, she's pretty cute, or he's really handsome, and wanting to tear their clothes off. There's a real difference in that. It's like going to the museum of uh, like the, uh, the Art Institute in Chicago and going, that's a very nice Rembrandt. And ripping it off the wall and running out the door as fast as you can. Okay, there is a difference between appreciation and lust. Okay, so we are not to uh, lust. Christians are not to be addicted to lust. Uh, lust is a continuous desire to have sex with someone other than your husband or your wife. So, and here's the thing, because, you know, you may think, well, you know, I don't lust after anyone in particular, but, you know, maybe... You go to the strip club every once in a while. That, that's not good because you cannot help but lust in a strip club from what I'm told. Never been, not, no plans to go. But if you're in a strip club, you're going to be lusting. Internet pornography. You can't watch internet porn without lusting. Okay? And lust is not behavior that is... Uh, for Christians, Christians are not to be addicted to lust. You may say to yourself, but I'm not hurting anybody. Going to strip club every once in a while, I'm not hurting anyone. Watching a little porn on the internet, I'm not hurting anyone. Ask your husband or wife. Ask them what they think. Why do you do it in secret? <laughs> Why do you go to the strip club in the middle of the night? Why do you hide uh, with your laptop? Because you know it's wrong. You know that it's lust. You know that that's not what we're supposed to be doing. You know that that's not the way that Christians are supposed to live. 
Like I said, ask your husband or wife if they think it's, it hurts them. You know, Jesus has some really tough words about lust. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and, and what's with that? Just only guys? No, no, no. I See, I remember a commercial back in the, in the 1990s. It was the Diet Coke break commercial. Anybody remember the Diet Coke break commercial with the guy, the hunky dude, you know, out there working on it, and all the girls with their Diet Cokes at the window going, ah, Diet Coke break, and they're looking at the guy, you know, hard hat on, and yeah, whatever, but anyway, Jesus says, I think what he's trying to get at is that it's more of a guy problem than a girl problem, but it's, it's, it's equal opportunity. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. That's tough stuff. What Jesus is saying is do not commit adultery, but where adultery comes from, it starts with lust. And so if you are lusting, You need to do what it takes to get rid of lust in your life. Lust is sin because lust leads to adultery in the heart heart and in the mind. Third thing, third, fourth, and fifth things. Okay, these all go together. Feasting, drunkenness, and wild parties. Now, what's wrong with this? I mean, what's wrong with the little party every once in a while? You know, what's wrong with the little wine, women, and song? You know, here's, here's what Peter was getting at when he was talking to the people of his day. They would have these wild parties that went late into the night with lots of drinking and, and men would chase after boys and slave girls and it was just debauchery galore, okay? Uh, the Greek word for drunkenness literally means wine, okay? And, and it means too much wine. And you may be thinking to yourself, all right, hey, I don't like wine. I like beer. Or I, I don't like wine. I like vodka. Or I don't like wine. I like margaritas. So I'm okay, right? Wrong. It's too much alcohol. It's too much drinky drinky. Too much. Overindulging. Why is it wrong? But why is it wrong to get drunk? It lowers your inhibitions. You do things that you shouldn't do. Or you don't do things that you should do. And you wake up with the list of regrets a mile long from the night before. If you can even remember the night before. You wake up with this long list of regrets, the things that you shouldn't have done. Now, there's nothing wrong with a good party. There's nothing wrong with with having a little fun. We have great parties here at First Christian Church. We do. We have great parties. In fact, we're having one this Saturday night with the taco bar and movie night. We're going to have a great... It's a party. It's a lot of fun. It's a good time. We're going to make tacos. We're going to watch a great movie. We're going to fellowship and hang out with one another. We're going to have a great party on Palm Sunday with our Palm Sunday brunch. It's a party. We are a church that loves to party. We party according to God's standards. We have fun uh, with one another uh, according to God's standards. And, but when we party like the godless, wine, women, and song, that's sinful partying. And we as Christians need to live differently. The sixth one is idolatry. Easy one, right? Idolatry. We don't worship idols. I don't bow down to any statues. I don't pray to any false gods. I don't worship any idols. Nothing of stone, silver, or gold, right? No problem. A little bit of a problem. What is the number one false god in America? Money. 
Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul said, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, talked about that one. Impurity, lust, talked about that one too. Evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. What is the number one idol in America? Hint, it's green with a dead president on it. It's money. Like I said, in Colossians 3, 5, he says that greed is idolatry. And here in America, we worship money. We worship money and things and stuff. You know, John, D, uh, John David Rockefeller was asked, how much is enough? How much money is enough? This guy was a millionaire multiple, multiple times over. And he asked, how much money is enough? How many dollars is enough? He says, the next one. It's greed. It's that desire, that burning desire for more and more, more stuff, more money, more things. And here's the thing. We, we may not think that we're idolaters. We may not think that we worship false idols. The number one, the real American idol doesn't, isn't crowned on a television show. The real American idol is money. It is, it is the dollar. People make all kinds of sacrifices for it. We do. We sacrifice our health, we sacrifice our marriages, we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our families. For what? Money. That is our idol. And we worship it as a country. It's not how it's supposed to be for Christians. We need to live differently. We worship Jesus. We worship God the Father. We worship God and God alone. We'll talk about that in just a second. The godless chase after all these things, the six things. And you know what? Peter says they think it's strange that we don't. People outside the church, people who don't know God, people who don't love Jesus, they think it's strange that we don't do all these things. What? You guys are just a bunch of killjoys. Why don't you have some fun? Why don't you let loose? Put your hair down. Let's have a little fun. God says we don't do those things. Jesus says we don't do those things. We are Christians. We live differently. And Peter says that in his day, they were persecuting those people who didn't get, who didn't go along with them. You, you ever get in trouble? You ever, I mean, you ever have people like laugh at you and poke fun at you and persecute you, make fun of you because you won't do the wrong thing? Come on, man, everybody's doing it. You know what they're afraid of? They're afraid you're going to tell on them. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, come on, man, dude, everybody's doing it, all right? It's just a stapler for crying out loud. Come on. Everybody's doing it. It's just an extra 10 minutes on your lunch break. It's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. And when you do the right thing, they're like, what's wrong with you? You some kind of goody two-shoes? You think you're better than me? You ever hear that one? <laughs> no, I'm a Christian. And we're called to be different. We don't go with the flow. We go against it. We chase after Christ. We don't chase after the things of this world. I'm a Christian, and Christians don't do these things. Now, there's a little bit of a weird kind of verse in verses 4 and 5. It talks about how, um, if you look at it here real quick, verses 4 and 5. Uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 5 and 6. Uh, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. You may be wondering, what does that mean that it was preached to those now dead? It's not that 
the gospel was preached to people who died before and then wherever they went into the place of the dead that the gospel was preached to them then. It was that the gospel was preached to them, they died, and they will one day stand before God in judgment, as we will all stand before God and he will be our judge. And that's the point of this passage, is that time is of the essence, the end is near, we are going to be judged by God for everything we've ever done, for everything we will ever do, God will judge everyone, the living and the dead. And so Peter was telling them that just because people have died doesn't mean that they escape judgment. Everybody will be judged. And those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, those who have given themselves to Jesus, will be judged and found innocent. The godless will be found guilty. So we've talked about how we're not to live or how we used to live then. How are we to live now? How do we live now since the end is near? Look at verse 7. Starting in verse 7, we'll finish the passage. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. How are we supposed to live? We know that the end is near. Christ is going to return. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. We will have to give account for the things that we have done. So how should we live now? knowing that the end is near. What should we do knowing that the end is near? Well, the first thing he says to do is to be clear-minded and self-controlled. To be clear-minded and self-controlled. This is the opposite of drunkenness, the opposite of doing drugs, the opposite of getting drunk, the opposite of getting high. Because when you're drunk or when you're high, you're not in control. The substance is in control, whether it's alcohol or drugs. That's what's in control. How can you pray? How can you pray if you're drunk or high? Now, I'm sure many prayers have been uttered by those who are drunk. Oh, God, please don't let me get pulled over. Oh, God, please don't let me throw up. Oh, God, please don't let me have a hangover in the morning. Those are not prayers. Those are desperate pleas for miracles. Those are not prayers. How can you pray if you're drunk? How can you pray if you're high? You can't. Peter says to be clear-minded, to be self-controlled. Don't give in to your lusts. Don't give in to sexual immorality. Do the right things. We need sober-minded prayers. We need self-controlled lives. Doing the right thing, saying no to sin and no to temptation. It takes self-control. And we are a, we are a people, we live in a country where self-control is like the last thing on people's list. Self-control? Are you kidding? I can go to a steakhouse and get a 20-ounce steak, medium rare, seasoned just right, put a little A1. No, I don't like A1. I like Country Bob sauce. Put a little Country Bob sauce on there. Anybody ever try Country Bob sauce? Very good stuff. You can get it at any store. Owned by a Christian. Seriously. He's got a little Jesus fish on the side of the Country Bob bottle. It's very good. Very sweet sauce. Anyway, I'm making you hungry now, thinking about steak. It's like, oh. But I, I can go, I can get a 20-ounce steak, and I can just, you know, wolf the whole thing down. And then, Best meal I've ever had in my life. Lambert Steakhouse, Springfield, Missouri. 
Home of the... You all been there. I say y'all because it's in the country. We, we go in, right? We go into this place and it's, it's just awesome. And, and it's like, I, I made eye contact. The, the roll thrower comes out pushing the cart and he takes the roll. I made eye contact, boom, right here in the side. Hit me with the roll. It's like, and, and they're delicious. The rolls are great. So anyway, we sit down. I ordered a 14 ounce ribeye, medium rare. Wonderful steak. And of course, now at Lambert's, you, you sit down and you eat your meal and it's very good, but they also bring other stuff like to your table. They have like a pan of, of potatoes and onions. And, would you like some potatoes and onions? Yes, I would. Tell me when to stop. You can stop now. Okay. They bring a big pot of fried okra. Would you like some fried okra? No? Okay. No, tell me when to stop. No, stop. Pots of macaroni and tomatoes. You want some macaroni and tomatoes? Sure. Okay, that's good. Thank you very much. So I get done eating my fried onions and potatoes, my uh, a little bit of fried okra, not a big fan. But uh, I get done eating my 14-ounce ribeye. Oh, it's so good. Done just right. The waiter comes up to me, server comes up to me and says, how was your steak? I said, it was great. He goes, do you want another one? I said, I can't afford that. And he goes, you don't understand. Everything here is all you can eat. <sighs> Are you telling me that I can have another 14-ounce ribeye cooked medium rare just the way I like? Absolutely. Garçon, more steak. I got about 10. Now, this is the days before I had. I had gastric bypass surgery like six months ago, six years ago. Six months ago. Six years ago. And uh, this is the days before gastric bypass surgery. And so I was able to get about 10 more ounces of that steak down. And I waddled out to my car more than stuffed, more than satisfied. And the last thing on my mind that day was self-control. I had none. And we are a nation that has no self-control. Whatever we want, we want it the way we want it, and we want it right now. doesn't matter. Sexual immorality, I want it right now. Drugs, Want them right now. Get drunk. Want it right now. With no self-control. Peter says that's not how Christians behave. We need to be self-controlled. Second thing we need to do is we need to love each other deeply. And this is a, a thought that he uh, shared earlier in 1 Peter 1.22. We need to love each other deeply from the heart. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. What a great concept. Love covers over a multitude of sins. That love helps us overlook and forgive the sins that we commit against one another. Peter's the guy. Peter's the one. He came up to Jesus in Matthew 18, 21 and 22 and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? He's talking about his fellow disciples. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, there should be no limit to your forgiveness. You should love your brothers so much that you're willing to forgive any offense. Oh, but that's hard. Yeah, it is. But that's what Christians do. Sometimes we are called to do the hard thing and forgive those who don't deserve forgiveness and to show grace to those who don't deserve it, to show mercy who don't deserve it. We need to be forgiving and full of grace and full of mercy toward one another. Love and forgive as God has loved us through Jesus Christ. How has God loved us? Listen to Romans 5, 8 through 11. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation because of his amazing incredible unconditional deep love for us god has covered over a multitude of our sins he has forgiven a multitude of our sins we need to do the same for one another to love each other deeply and it's not easy to show grace it is not easy to forgive and i'm not going to stand up here and tell you that it is because it's not but it's what we're called to do it's what christians do sometimes we have to do the hard thing and we have to forgive even when somebody doesn't deserve it. Third thing we do is we give generously. Giving generously. We are not to be characterized by greed or idolatry. Rather, we are to give our time, our talents, and our tithes to the kingdom of God. It's funny. We teach preschoolers how to share, right? I go up to the preschool. I teach a Bible story once a week uh, for both classes. And, and you'll hear things like, we need to share. Right, Kim? We need to share. And so what happens when we get older? We stop sharing. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's like, it's good for you, not for me. This is mine. We're like the little birds in Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. mine. It's not yours. Everything you have is a gift from God. Everything in your possession, God gave it to you. Are you kidding? I worked hard for this. Who gave you the job? Who gave you the food to make the energy to go to the job? Where does it all come from? It all goes back to God. It all comes from Him. It all belongs to Him. And He only asks for a portion back out of thanksgiving and gratitude and thankfulness. We need to share our tithes, our time, and our talents with one another and with God. God gives to us generously. And I believe this is a biblical principle that God gives generously so that we can give away generously. That God gives to us and blesses us so that we can bless others. We have too much stuff. I don't know about you, but I got too much stuff. I got too much stuff, and I need to get rid of some of it. And you're like, oh, I'll take some. No, you got too much stuff too. We all do. We got too much stuff in our houses, in our storage units. You know, and so what happens? I got too much stuff. I need to go shopping for more. And we do that. We go shopping for more stuff. And who do we go shopping for? Me, us ourselves i want to shop i want to buy more stuff for me no that is not why we are blessed we are blessed so that we can bless others so if you see somebody who's hungry give them some groceries go buy them a bag of groceries you see somebody who needs shoes buy shoes you see somebody who's poor put a tank of gas in their car and you're like wait a minute a tank of gas that's like like 70 bucks what are you going to blow it on that you can't help somebody else who needs it Here's the cool thing, okay? When we give generously to others, we administer God's grace. We are administrators of God's grace. We are pouring out God's grace on other people. It's what Peter says. When we give generously, we partner with God to share his grace with people. And that's an awesome responsibility. And that is so very important that we do that, that we share God's grace because that's what Christians do. The last thing, and you're like, finally, the last thing is that we are to be speaking and serving like Jesus. We need to talk like Jesus. I, know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't talk like Jesus. I say things that I shouldn't. 
I, I, I use words that I shouldn't. I, I say angry things. I talk about people behind their backs sometimes and I shouldn't. I talk about subjects that I probably shouldn't. I joke about things that I shouldn't. And I imagine that as I'm looking out and about, I see a lot of people who do the same. We don't talk like Jesus and we need to. We need to serve like Jesus. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We need to serve like Jesus. We need to help other people. He gave his life for us. Are we giving our lives to him? That's the question. Are you giving your life to Jesus? And if you are, you will speak like Jesus and you will serve like Jesus. That's what a Christian does. That is what a fully surrendered and fully sold out follower of Jesus does. We're clear-minded and self-controlled so we can pray real prayers. We love each other deeply and forgive one another's sins. We give generously to one another and to God's kingdom. And then we speak and we serve like Jesus. So my challenge for you today is to examine your life. How you living? Check yourself. How am I doing? Am I living like a godless person or am I living a life of godliness? Am I living like an unbeliever or am I living like a Christian? How are you living? Are you living by faith? Has your faith changed you? Has it made a difference in your life? Why are you even here today? Why are you here? Well, I'm here to make my spouse happy. It's not the right reason. You're here because, well, I'm here because my kids need to learn about Jesus. No, you need to learn about Jesus. You need to grow in faith. You need to become more like Christ. This is for you as much as it is for anyone else. This is for you and this is for me so that we can grow up and be more like Jesus to live a life of daily devotion and fully surrendered, wholehearted, sold out commitment to Christ. And why do we do that? Because the end is near. The end is near. Heavenly Father, help us to live with a sense of urgency knowing that the end is near, knowing that the end of all things is near, as Peter says. And he reminds us that Jesus is coming soon and that he will bring with him, he will bring him with him the angels. He will bring with him those who have died in him before us. And there will be a great reunion. But God, we have so much work to do, so many people to tell, so, so much of a difference to be made. And God, you give us the strength to do that. Help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Help us to live a life that is fully surrendered and fully sold out and fully devoted to Jesus. That we might put him first. We might follow him more closely. We might be like Jesus. Because the end is near. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.